Am I normal? It's a question we all ask ourselves at all stages of our lives, isn't it? School, work, retirement. And although we're told to embrace our uniqueness, deep down we secretly want to know that we're just like everybody else. Nowhere is that more true for the Christian than with our struggles with sin. And I think partly to blame for that are Christian biographies. I've been reading a Christian biography of William Booth. Now, I've got a lot of respect for William Booth and the work he did with the Salvation Army. But to read the book that I'm reading at the moment, you believe that the man never did anything wrong. There's no mention of any sin in his life, no shortcomings whatsoever. Whenever he preaches, there's always people saved. When he's accused of being overly authoritative, they're wrong. When people criticise his evangelistic technique, they're mistaken. The man never seems to set a foot wrong. Now, the technical term for this kind of tosh is hagiography. I say tosh because that's what they are. Books like that don't leave you inspired to live for God. They leave you crushed, downcast and despairing, believing that you're abnormal, that the norm is basically sinless perfection for the Christian. But can't we be equally as guilty of that in our conversation, conversations and our relationships in church? The impression that we give is that we are perfect and never sin. In fact, I imagine if someone did something like swear at church, um, there would be gasps. But I bet that's what a lot of people do at home uh, or in their own heads. I'm not suggesting here that we start swearing at church. But this situation where we make out that we're perfect is not healthy. In the Bible, Christians confess their sin to one another. In churches nowadays, Christians hide their sin from one another. The result is that everybody feels that they're the only one. I'm the only one who's struggling with sin. Everyone else is just fine, it's just me. I better pretend that I'm not struggling with sin, otherwise I won't fit in. And so the cycle continues. But Paul is having none of this in our passage this morning. And as he continues to explain about the role of the law in the life of the Christian, he's going to be open with us about his own struggles. He's not going to whitewash it, but he's going to give it to us straight. Paul has been telling us uh, through this passage and through the other ones we've been looking at uh, that Jesus' death on the cross plus faith equals life. I'm realising now you can't see that very well. Jesus' death on the cross plus faith equals life. But he's also been explaining the flip side, that sin plus law equals death. This is the sort of mathematics of the kingdom, if you like. This is what's going on as Paul explains this through Romans. He's told us how faith unites us to Christ so that his death was our death, our death to sin and to the law. But we're left with the possible impression that the law is a bad thing. I mean, we had to die to it, didn't we? But isn't this supposed to be God's law? Wasn't it supposed to be for our good? So Paul is going to tell us about his own experiences with the law and sin and show us what the normal Christian life is like. So our first point is the law is not the problem. The law is not the problem. But technology apparently is a problem. (laughs) Okay, this isn't working. Okay, it's fine. The law is not the problem. That's our first point. Have a look again with me at verses 7 to 12. What should we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me through it and killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is good. Did that which is good then? Oh, we'll, we'll come to that in a, a few moments' time. Uh, so, looking at uh, those few verses there, Paul is saying that the law is like a candlestick. Uh, but it's a candlestick in a game of Cluedo. Or for those of you who are watching from overseas, you might know the game as Clue. It's a candlestick in the sense of Professor Plum with the candlestick in the kitchen. Except in this case, it's sin with the law in the human heart. What Paul is saying is that the law is not bad. It's sin that is so bad that it will use something good to destroy us. Sin is pictured like a murderer who would use God's law to murder us. It doesn't show the sinfulness of the law. It shows the utter sinfulness of sin. And I don't think we grasp this as generations before us did. Forget the candlestick for a second. It's as perverse as electrocuting someone with a defibrillator. It's as twisted as drowning a man dying of thirst. What is supposed to bring life becomes an instrument of death in the hands of sin. It's like the kiss of Judas in the garden, turning something beautiful, a kiss, into something that betrays us. Sin is not some cuddly religious version of the cookie monster. Actually, it's a cold-blooded killer. It's responsible for more deaths in history than anything else. One out of one. If only we took the same precautions against sin as we do against the virus. If only we had the same hatred for sin as we do of war. If only we took it as seriously as we do things like climate change. Sin destroys us. Sin is a killer. Even good things in its hands become instruments of death. That's what Paul is explaining here. And Paul gives us his own experience of this. He explains how for him, sin plus law equals death. Now there's a big debate here whether Paul is speaking as Paul himself, or whether he's using the I rhetorically for someone else or something else. Maybe it's Adam or Israel, or someone who's not yet become a Christian. I'm going to take it this morning that when Paul says I, he means I himself. The thing with Paul's experience, though, is that it mirrors everyone else's experience. It mirrors what happened to Adam. It mirrors what happened to Israel. It mirrors what happens to us, indeed any sinful human being, when we come into contact with moral rules. So we shouldn't find it surprising that we see echoes of the Bible's nation of Israel's experience. We shouldn't be surprised when we see echoes of Adam and Eve. And we shouldn't be surprised when this sounds a lot like our experience. Paul knew sin when he heard the commandment, do not covet. That's what he's saying here. Now, coveting is desiring what someone else has, lusting after someone else's things, wanting them. Now, it's clear from this that what's in mind here by the word law is all the law, not just the so-called ceremonial parts of it. 
This is a quote from the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai to Israel. Paul says that he heard the commandment, but instead of that helping him to obey it, actually sin took hold of it and made Paul want to disobey it. Now sin is something deeper than just wrong things. It's an inner rejection of God. It's an inner rebellion that has hold of our hearts. It shows itself in different symptoms in different people. But all those people have the same sin problem. All of them have the same sinful heart. All of us do. And when the law met Paul's sinful heart, it produced more sin. It's the don't walk on the grass syndrome. You know, when you see a sign that says don't walk on the grass You hadn't thought about walking on the grass until you saw the sign, but now suddenly that's all you want to do. At the moment, it's don't go out syndrome. People who have wanted for years to do everything online, just sit behind a screen. Now that they've been told to stay inside, what do they suddenly want to do? They find themselves driving to the Lake District all of a sudden, even though they've never done that before. Sin is so perverse that it used the command as an opportunity for Paul to break it. Instead of fleeing from covetousness, it affects, infects his mind, and he dies. Spiritually speaking, Paul is now dead. And this is where some people have problems. The Bible teaches that we're all born in a dead spiritual state, that we inherit from Adam, so to speak, this this deadness that we start with. So the only person who was ever alive to start with was Adam. But Paul here is speaking from his own experience of this. This is what he's expressing, his experience. This is how he knew sin. So there, part, second part of verse 7. Yet if I had not, had not been from the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said and so on. What he's saying here is this is his experience of it. When covetousness hit, he knew for the first time his spiritual state. He knew sin and he knew death and it was due to sin. So we might want to nuance what Paul is saying here is that he became conscious of sin at this point. Before that, perhaps he thought he was a good person, but now he knows that he's not. So perverse are his insides that they've taken something good like God's commands and twisted them into an opportunity to sin. He's dead meat and deep down he knows it. Perhaps you had a similar experience. I can't remember my first convictions of sin, but I can think of times when I've been really struck by the sinfulness of sin in me. Times when I should have been a help to friends, but instead I've hurt or taken advantage of them. Times I've let down my wife. Times I've let down my children. Times that I've let down God. And then afterwards it just strikes you like a mallet, just how sinful my own sin is how sinful I am deep down. And that's what struck Paul here. If this law hadn't been there, there would have been no opportunity to sin, so to speak, in this way. The law prompted him to sin in a new way. Not that there's no sin if there are no rules. Paul's already looked at that in chapter 2. There are, and we're judged for them. But law turns sin into transgression. So that not only are we doing wrong, we're actually breaking rules. We become lawbreakers. So, for example, until a few days ago, there wasn't a law against spitting at nurses. It doesn't mean that it was right before, 
The difference is now that it's not just wrong, it's an offence. So the law seems to make things worse. Does that mean then that the law is just an instrument of death? Well, that brings us to our second point. The law makes things worse, but for the better. The law makes things worse, but for the better. Have a look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Is the law then the author of death? No, says Paul. The law exposes sin. It brings it out into the open. It shows us just how sinful sin is. It makes it break its cover. It exposes it. So it shows us we can't keep it. The law is like a, a, an instruction for IKEA furniture. Now, other Swedish furniture stores are available, though perhaps not at the moment. But the instructions that we get, imagine this for a moment, are correct. That would be a change, wouldn't it? So the instructions that God gives us are correct. The problem is that we've thrown away our little Allen key that came with the instructions. Perhaps you've had one of these uh, through. Uh, uh, you get them through from Ikea and other furniture stores to do the furniture. The instructions are correct. The problem is that we've thrown away the Allen key that came with it. What should have been possible has now become impossible. Not because the instructions are bad, but because we've, uh, before we've even started, we've thrown away the very thing we need to make it possible. We were told how to build life, if you like, but instead we build death. We've condemned ourselves to frustration and ultimately hell. What happened? Well, our first fathers had the Allen key, but they threw it away, so to speak. They spiritually maimed themselves. They let sin enter the world, and now we are unable to do what the law commands. And I would love to say that all generations after them have been looking for that key, but they haven't. They've done one of three things. They've either ignored the instructions altogether, they've come up with their own instructions, or like Paul, they carried on regardless with the instructions, even though they didn't have the key. And even though that's only producing death, they stubbornly believe that they can do it without God's help. So trying to obey the law only brings frustration. We can't keep it. So the function of the law here in this passage is to show up sin for what it is. Now, originally, I was going to say that the law is like an x-ray showing up sin. But that's not really what this verse has in mind. If we want to follow the medical line, the law is like a treatment that makes us worse. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the medical drama House. Uh, my wife and I quite enjoyed that a few years ago. Uh, it's uh, in it, Hugh Laurie plays a doctor who is basically a Sherlock Holmes character who likes puzzles more than patients. And one of his favourite techniques when they're at a loss as to the condition, as to the illness is that they make the patient more ill. The symptoms come out more clearly as they get more ill, and then he can treat them knowing what they have. The law works a bit like that. It shows us the perversity of our sin. Not only that we would do wrong things, that we would do illegal things, so to speak, things that are against the law, that we would break the rules. 
It exposes the state of our hearts by making us worse. Without the rules, we can plead ignorance to a certain degree. Not totally, because we have a conscience that tells us right from wrong. But with the rules, with the law, that excuse is taken away. We knew it was wrong, and we did it anyway. If you like military analogies, it makes the enemy give away their position, and it shows you their strength. That's what the law does. It's like a ruse that makes the enemy come out, but it gives you intel. The bad news is that the enemy is big, and it brings them out against you, if you like. But the good news is that because at least is that at least you know what you're fighting. Sin is shown for what it is. There's no mistaking how deceitful and how cunning your enemy is. And knowing your enemy is half the battle, isn't it? And it is a battle that we're engaged in. As Paul goes on to explain in our last point, the life of a Christian is a battle. The life of a Christian is a battle. And this is verses 14 to 25. Have a look at them with me. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the ability, sorry, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul again brings us to his own personal experiences from his life. And his experience of the Christian life is one of frustration and fight. In the tongue-twisting section here, Paul describes the frustration he still feels with the law. He wants to do what God wants, but he's still not capable of doing it as he would like. Sin still lives in him and still is a powerful foe. It's been dethroned... Um, but it hasn't uh, been removed from him. It's been removed from authority within him, but it still exerts an influence on every area of his life. You see, sin is a bit like a, a, a rhino. Uh, children, if you're listening, what, uh, what noise does a rhino make? Yeah, sort of grunting noise, doesn't it? Well, G.K. Testerson wrote, If a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, there would be no denying that he would have great power here. But I should be the first to rise and assure him that he has no authority whatsoever. In other words, he's saying that the, the law there has power but not authority. Or as John Owen wrote in his classic Indwelling Sin in Believers, it does not have the right to rule over them, yet it will still exercise dominion in them in some respects. It has been weakened, but its nature remains unchanged. It is still a law and is still powerful. 
Paul here is writing as a Christian. He is writing in his present experience, in the present tense. Some people have found verse 14 troublesome because of this, because it seems to speak of slavery almost, sold under sin. Haven't Christians been freed from sin? Hasn't our slavery ended? Romans 16 verse 18 and 22 both speak about us having been freed from the law. Well, Jim Packer puts this well in Keeping Step with the Spirit. He says, verse 14 is stated categorically and without qualification, not because it is the whole truth about Paul the Christian, but because it is the only part of the truth that can be revealed uh, by the law. It's the only part of the truth that the law can tell him. This is Paul speaking about his experience with the law. This is all the law can tell him. It offers no solution. It only restates the problem. It just gives the same answer over and over again. It's the Bible's version of computer says no. Paul wants to do good. Paul wants to do what God wants. But even in his best moments, sin is right there alongside him, right inside him, like an enemy within, just like an unwelcome guest who will not leave. And don't we know that feeling as Christians? In our best moments, we want so desperately to please God. We start off with such lofty and high ideas, don't we? I'm not going to gossip anymore. I'm not going to look at that website anymore. I am going to pray for 30 minutes today. I am going to speak to that person about Jesus. But how often do those things so quickly amount to nothing? Or even when we do do those things, how quickly does our pride inflate? Even at our best, sin is right there. As we have mentioned in the previous point, we are simply unable to perform perfectly what is right. But there are some major differences between then and now. The one that's highlighted here is that now, as a Christian, we actually want to do what is right. Our desires have changed. We actually now want to please God. Now that may sound something small, but it is huge. It's huge because it points to a change on the inside, in the inner being or the inner man, as Paul calls it. Our inner spiritual life has been changed. We are now not just frustrated by our inability to do what is right, but it seems alien to us when we do that. That's what he's getting at here in verse 20. But now if I, uh, <clears throat> but now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not absolving himself of responsibility for sin. He's explaining now that it's against what he wants to do, whereas before he wanted to do it. It feels to him like another power operating in him against his will. But he is still responsible. And deep down, he knows that, but it's no longer what he wants to do. And so because this change has taken place inside, yet our sinful nature remains. And that means that we're disappointed in ourselves. The change has taken place, but sin continues. And so we're disappointed. We echo with Paul in 18, verse 18, that nothing good dwells in us. We shout with Paul, wretched man that I am, in verse 24, and cry out for rescue. And yet, those very statements are a clue that inside, we're not what we were. 
This inner man is called the mind in verses 23 to 25. But it's that same idea. Sin has a man inside, we saw that. But God has a man inside too. A renewed part of you. A new self, a new heart, an inner man. One that is now at war with sin. That is, it's at open warfare with sin in your life. Part of being a Christian is being at war with sin. And that war is waged inside each of us. You see, the Christian's war is not with sinners out there. It's with sin in here. It's not a war against unbelievers. It's a war against unbelief in our own hearts. And it's a daily struggle. Remember, though, it's the ones who are living after a shipwreck, who thrash about in the water, who battle with the tides and the waves. The ones who aren't struggling are still. That's not because they're better than you. They're still because they're dead, floating with the tide, unconcerned about their fate. If you're struggling with sin, it is a sign of life, not a sign of death. It might be a sign that you are very aware of the grip that sin has in your life. Perhaps those who don't struggle as hard are actually not aware of the effect of sin in their life. Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling with sin, that is normal. You are normal. So normal that even the great apostle Paul is in your company. So normal that every Christian throughout history is in that group. From Augustine, who struggled with lust, to John Newton, who struggled with his old life in the slave trade. Even John Wesley, who wrongly taught that Christians could become sinless in this life. Never claimed that for himself. No, he actually left that to his followers in Otley. The ones in Otley were the first who claimed that for themselves in the whole uh, world. But Wesley was struggling with sin until the day he died. The people who should be worried this morning are those who are not struggling with sin. Could it be that, as John Owen calls it, that you've made a false peace with sin? That you've done a Neville Chamberlain from World War Two? The enemy's still there, but you've just decided to leave it alone. After all, isn't that easier? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. How do we do that with some degree of success in this life? Well, Paul is going to tell us in chapter 8. And there is hope for us. After crying out for rescue in verse 14, he gives thanks to Jesus, his rescuer. He's sure that one day the battle will be over and no sin will be dwelling in his flesh. But for now, we need to be encouraged. We are not alone in the battle. You are not alone in the battle. All believers are in the battle with us. You are in the battle. I'm in the battle too. So don't be downcast. You really are normal. I really am normal in that respect anyway. But let's trust God to go before us in the battle. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are with us in the battle. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you haven't left us as we are. But now we have that will that wants to fight with sin. So Father, give us the strength and the energy and the commitment and the love we need to keep battling with sin. Help us to keep going this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.